this show and also throughout my long relationship with my esteemed co-host, Matt Wardlaw, I have accused many rock records of being bloated and self-indulgent. I'm the type of listener who thinks that a good rock record is about 10 songs and 45 minutes long. And uh, this is a conversation that Matt and I have had many times. You've heard it happen a few times. I bring this up because I need to lead off this episode with an apology to all of those albums that I ever called bloated and self-indulgent. I have, I have heard, I have heard bloated and self-indulgent now, and I know what it sounds like. And it is the record, the records that we're here to talk about today. I am referring of course, to guns and roses, magnum opus, use your illusion volumes one and two. But before we dive right into that, Matt, how are you? I'm doing phenomenal, man. I can't wait to you know spend some time talking with you now that I've like lost uh, close to two hours of my life to uh, use your illusion one and use your illusion two. <laughs> yeah, I I thought I was I genuinely thought I was losing time somehow when I listened to the first disc. I did not realize just how fucking long it really is uh you know obviously the second one is not that much shorter but i maybe by then i knew what i was what i was into Man, i'm florida i didn't look at the length but i'm looking like just disc one 76 yes minutes. yes and i think 16 songs it goes on and on and on 75 minutes for the second album wow Woo. but uh yeah use your illusion one and two we knew when we conceived of this podcast that this was a, a, a project that we would have to discuss, not just because it's one of the biggest rock albums to come out in 91, but also because I think it exemplifies conceptually, if not musically, sort of what where, where AOR was at that point in time and, and what was sending it over a cliff. You know, mm. in part, just the idea that everything had to keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and that the only way to be better was to be bigger. You kind of saw it a little bit elsewhere in the year and in a different genre with um, the Michael Jackson record that followed Bad, which followed Thriller, and 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 you know you could you could feel him straining to get bigger every single time, and 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 that's kind of what I hear at least in the idea behind following up a record as lean and punchy as Appetite for Destruction with this sprawling mess of material. What's that old, what's that old saying about you know, the, the way to sculpt an elephant is to take away everything that's not an elephant? I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't think there was very, very much sculpting going on here. I just like the fact that we have now graduated from bloated to sprawling mess. <laughs> I just wanted to mark this important milestone as we uh, get into the latest episode of the series here, because we have heard a lot about CD bloat this year. Now we have graduated yes. to sprawling mess. I want to make sure everybody understands, including you. I really do think there is a, a great 10 song record. Sure. Here. It's yeah. just buried. Yeah, and that's worth saying that, like, as you're aware, Ultimate Classic Rock has the what they call the 45 minute album police, where they take a record and, you know, cut it down to 45 minutes. I'm pulling this off the top of my head. So I, I think it was not necessarily, I, I think we kind of varied in this case, since it is a sprawling mess. 
and just did the thing like, can we take the two volumes of Use Your Illusion and cut it down to one album? So that's uh, an exercise that if you look on the UCR website, uh, I took a stab at that. And I can tell you that you're correct. There were at least four or five of us that did this. And I came up with like a one album playlist that I was like, you know what? Like when you cut it down like this, this is a really good cohesive record that I think even the one that I had, let's say that was probably 55 minutes or an hour. It unfortunately would fall into the category of CD bloat for my beloved co-host, <laughs> but um, it was a really good serving of CD bloat. That's all I'm going to say. What I will say, you know, since you brought, brought that up straight out of the gate was I spoke with Matt Sorum, who of course was the drummer for those records for all, except for maybe, you know, one or two songs I think had Adler, you know, left over from, uh, you know, the previous regime. And I asked him, you know, about the fact that they put out these, you know, two records and should they have just put out one? And he made the, what what is kind of an important distinction, you know, just, it's been spelled out many times, but just the fact that it is called Use Your Illusion 1 and Use Your Illusion 2 for a reason you can't take this and just say, okay, this is just a you know double album from Guns N' Roses because Axel never envisioned it that way. And Sorum kind of stuck in a little detail, which I think I've heard in the past, but I thought was kind of interesting um, and shed some new light on that. And that is that the reason he wanted to put these out into stores as separate albums was that he wanted to make sure that he was putting something in the stores that like, you know, the kid was going to go to the record store and be able to buy that Guns N' Roses record and not be priced out because it was a double CD and out of his price range. So, okay. Um, but then he's going to get one, <laughs> you know, he, he's not going to get both of them. He's still not going to get the whole thing. Well, you choose. You and I have been there. I, I don't think yes. that you faced, I don't think you and I, I, I don't think you faced this quandary, but certainly um, there were times where it's like maybe you went to the store and there were, let's say, you know, two James Taylor albums that you wanted to buy. And it's like you bought the one. And then when you, you know, saved up enough money, you went back and yep. bought the other one. I can, I can draw a parallel to this exact situation, which I don't think is a quandary that you, know, you would share with me because obviously, I ran into this with uh, Use Your Illusion 1 and 2. And I also ran into this with um, Bruce Springsteen's Human Touch and Lucky Town. So there were a couple of times in the early 90s where as a young, hungry music fan, I was faced with, all right, you know, one of my favorite artists just put out two records on the same day. And I want both of the records on the same day. So luckily, I think that I was in a pretty good financial uh, position working uh, as many hours as I possibly could at McDonald's. Um, when I wasn't in school uh, so that I was able to like go in and put down the cash and, you know, in this case, buy both both volumes of uh, Use Your Illusion and similarly buy both the Bruce Springsteen records. So what a charmed life I was living there in the 90s. Look, <laughs> well, I want to hear about your experience with these records um, when you get yeah. them home. I mean, I, unlike you, I no, I was not uh, particularly anticipating the release of this set. So I didn't go out to the store and get them. I did not have to choose between them. But but you you were looking forward to this. It was it was a big deal for you. So did you ever buy them though? Did you buy them at some point in the original shelf life? No. I listened to these albums for the first time while getting ready for this show. Nice. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. So I guess I'll put it back to you first. Like since you didn't buy the records, because. 
what was your reaction when you were hearing the stuff from this album on the radio? Because like, I think that's, that's interesting story. Number one is for all of us that had heard appetite for destruction, or at the very least had heard the singles from appetite for destruction. You started hearing the songs from these two records and you were going, Holy shit. They've been on a wild path. And it, and it, it's like, it's preserved for posterity with the songs that are on this record. Yeah. I mean, I, think about, think about it from this perspective. Like there are, there are crazy recording excursions of a similar fashion by the beach boys that would remain locked in the vaults for years to come <laughs> because eventually somebody, somebody heard what they were up to. And they're like, guys, we got to retool this. This isn't yeah. happening. <laughs> well, Axel, this happens. And the, the, fortunately, the world got to hear it because, like, I don't know, it just kind of speaks to the power of Guns N' Roses because there are so many other bands that the record label would have heard, you know, something like this. And they would have been like, all right, you got 30 songs. We're going to lose these 15. And not not, not so coincidentally, we're going to take the 15 craziest, most insane songs out of the mix here. And the songs that sound like your band we're going to keep those. But again, right. that didn't happen here. It's like every neurosi uh, that was like firing was allowed to like stay intact. Yeah. And I think this, again, there is some good stuff in here, but I also think it's a really good example of why maybe not every, I, I, every artist I can think of needs someone in their life who's powerful enough to say no. Yep. You're, you're not going to do this. Put that away. This doesn't, this is not, this is not happening. You know, Axel clearly did not have that person in his life at this point. And ah, I mean, your original question from my distant vantage point, this was a band that, you know, when they, the first time I heard Guns N' Roses, I thought, oh, okay, well, this is a little bit much for me. You know, this, this was, that was not the flavor of rock that I was particularly uh, hungry for at that point in time. And also his voice has always kind of been a lot for me to handle. That is not, you know, like he's, he's a fucking fantastic singer and a very distinctive singer, but I, I got to be in the mood to have somebody scream at me and, and uh, you know, welcome to the jungle and sweet child of mine, stuff like that was not really my thing. It wasn't until patience mm. that that I started to hear something in them that resonated with me a little bit. And so when this album, when these albums, sorry, came out, um, I don't know. I, I think as someone who only heard the stuff that was on the radio or on MTV, it seemed like Axel was was following a trajectory that was very familiar. He was he was making stuff that was more commercial. Maybe not. Maybe that's, maybe that's the wrong word, but I, like I'm thinking of November rain, you know, it, it's yeah. not really the most commercial song in the world. Cause it's nine goddamn minutes long, but yep. he's, it, it definitely for people who only thought of that band in one way, it was certainly a curveball, and it mm -hmm. definitely added a more of a, a pop element to their sound, a softer element to their sound. And then, you know, when they get up on stage and they play with Elton John, I think that is sending a message also that 
I guess it's another it's another reflection of the um, overwhelming ambition that led Axel to feel like he needed to put out every single one of these songs at once. You know that yeah, he was going to be more than just Welcome to the Jungle. He was going to be more than just Appetite for Destruction. He was going to be more than just uh, the front man for a Sunset Strip style, you know, late '80s hard rock band. He he wanted to show that he could do all this other stuff too. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of what you just mentioned was what was interesting to me was like, I, I think that's what was striking to me about hearing these records is that coming from Appetite for Destruction, there were certainly things that you heard to suggest that like they were still the same Guns N' Roses. Like I'm thinking of a tune specifically uh, like, you could be mine, like right. which I think that was in Terminator Two before the album it came. Was. Out. It was okay. Was. So it's like heard that. And song. In fact, I read that there was an older song that was, or no, maybe not an older song. I read a quote somewhere from somebody that they somebody in the band, I think it was Slash, thought that it sounded too much like Appetite Era Guns to put on their next record. I could see that. Yeah, yeah. So it's like. You could be mine, like was one that I heard that I was just like going cool. You know, this is going to be another great, you know, Guns N' Roses record. It has the template and I was good with the template. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's kind of very much for me, like a band, like, let's say if you're an ACDC fan, like, you know, they're not going to change <laughs> their template from record to record. And so the album that we had gotten in Appetite for Destruction, if they were going to give me another record of the caliber of appetite for destruction. I was okay with that to the point of what you also said though, as far as like patience and, you know, some of that stuff from the GNR lies EP, I was very intrigued by that very much in the same way of how I felt when Allison chains put out facelift in 1990. And then it's like their next thing before they put out dirt is they put out the sap EP. Now, right. like, so anybody that had heard the facelift album from Allison chains, like, Sap was such a left turn. And um, I think it's kind of a shame that it's Jar of Flies these days that like gets all the acclaim when you're thinking about acoustic uh, Alice, Alice in Chains. But it's like Sap, it's like, here's this all acoustic EP that it's like, it's got um, Chris Cornell, you know, sitting in on a tune, but it's also got Ann Wilson from Heart sitting in on mm. a tune. So I was still young enough in my journey as a music fan, and you were in this vein as well that when you hear a band that just takes like such a crazy veer from the normal road, I was like going, okay, I, I already thought music was pretty cool, but like any band that'll just like take what they're known for, throw all the caution to the wind, you know, kick all the babysitters out of the party. <laughs> I'm, I'm here for it. So that's what I got from GNR lies was I was like, Okay, that's interesting. I would not have expected that from Guns N' Roses. So that was cool. So then when I heard You Could Be Mine, I was like, all right, so this kind of like brings things back a little bit more what I was expecting for album number two. So then you start hearing stuff from Use Your Illusion 1 and Use Your Illusion 2. And I think the singles on this record were incredibly interesting. You know, we already talked about You Could Be Mine. 
just, you know, being a record that got radio play, obviously, and just had like a crazy video. The other song that I think is really the closest to normal GNR on these two albums is probably their cover of Knocking on Heaven's Door. That's they put a very Guns N' Roses spin on that song. And and so so those two, it's like if you only hear those two songs like, OK, you're going, you know, I know what I'm getting with this record. And probably not coincidentally, both of those were issued well in advance of the record, right? Though weren't those yeah. the two? I think you're right. They were the appetizers, right? Like I think yeah. knocking on heaven's door was that wasn't that on the Days of Thunder soundtrack. You're correct. Yeah, I think you're correct about that. Yep. Which was probably the last time anybody could tell Guns N' Roses what to do was you know, <laughs> 1990 when 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 Geffen is like. Tom Cruise is putting out a new movie and we need a song and, and you're going to give it to us. So they covered Dylan. I, know- I, I hear what you're saying there. I, I knock on heaven's door and, and you could be mine. Those are really effective ways to set up what what's to come. And I also think not a lot of fans are the type of listener that you're describing, you know, somebody who's eager and excited to hear where this artist is going to take them next. Not, not a lot of artists are, are uh, in it for the They just buy. buy the record. They don't necessarily think about that like you and I do. <laughs> well, but they they don't want to hear left. They don't want to hear curveballs. You know? they, sure. They, they want to hear what they heard before, just different. And I guess that's one reason why I could see possibly thinking it was a necessity to put out 30 songs over two albums to, yep. to, uh, to give themselves the the ability to... Give some fans what they want and then also do what the band wanted to do. I mean, I, I think leading off the first disc with that horrible, uh, what is it, uh, Right Next Door to Hell? Yeah. That's hardly a song. But I mean, <laughs> it's loud, it's aggressive. It's, you know, I think it sends a message like, uh, okay, you, we, we had a, a ballad hit with Patience, but this is still the band that. That, that, that rocked you before, you know, we, we haven't gone soft. Yeah. Yeah. I, I need to apologize in advance to uh, uh, friends or at least Twitter followers uh, that I have in, in, in the guys from the appetite for distortion podcast, which uh, anybody listening can tell immediately that must be a guns and roses podcast. And, <laughs> and they do just an incredible job of just like, you know, not only analyzing the records, but just, digging up all sorts of folks from the scenes from the scene and musicians who were around either on the records or associated with to like, come on and dissect, dissect all this stuff. So I'm sure that they've had somebody on that has like talked about this, but you know, this is the, the age old thing, man. I would love to have been inside the building at the record label when this record get, when these records get handed in, because I would have loved to have been, uh, a fly on the wall in every single office from the top brass to the marketing department as they were listening to this, go, you know, trying to figure out like, what are we going to do with this? Cause there's, yeah. there's some stuff here for them to work with, but I think on the surface, I don't know if you're going to hear that right away. You don't know that don't cry is going to eventually become a big hit. You don't know that November rain is going to become a big hit. And certainly so not November rain. I mean that. Yeah, Absolutely. You know, it's like, you know, you hear knocking on heaven's door, you hear you could be mine. And, you know, maybe you're like, 
I don't like that two out of the three songs that I have I'm hearing potential for are covers, but it's like you hear the version of Live and Let Die and you're going, okay, but so you're the marketing department or you're the top brass. It's conceivable to me that they could have been sitting there inside those walls going, we've got three songs on these two records that we can do something <laughs> with. <laughs> I think, yeah, I... I would love, I, I say this often when we talk about records on this show, but I, I, I too would love to know what the mood was and what was said, because not only is this punk and slab of largely non-radio friendly music, but also the story around the band and the story around the record yeah, was unlike anything else we saw, I think either one of us during our record buying youth. I mean, hmm. yep. they really took a long time to deliver this. And there was a lot going on while people were waiting for these albums. You know, you had um, the band developing a reputation for being assholes in concert, let's say, <laughs> <Yep>. uh, not, <laughs> not showing up on time and, and you know, not, not in a cute way, like uh, the replacements where, Either way, it was going to be um, a hell of a show, whether they were in tune or not. But they they just seemed kind of they got dangerous on a on a larger scale. I guess they 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 were um, uh, they seemed like an unreliable touring act. They seemed like an unreliable investment for the label, despite the fact that they were enormous. They were the biggest band in the world, and they kept people waiting for these albums. They went yep. to tour. And the records weren't ready yet. There was all kinds of like everything was just at a fever pitch. And then I don't know when these tapes were delivered, but I imagine it was at some point during all this when fans were screaming for these records to come out and the label had to have invested a substantial amount of money in them at this point. So, yeah, after all that happens, you get these tapes and you think, well, we're in for a penny we're in for a pound at this point and and you can't really you can't say no to axel anymore yeah so what are you left with exactly like you said i you're left scrambling for singles i guess i'd love to know what they had in their contract though that like that they had so much leverage and it could have been just as simple as after you I think we know this. This is this is time honored stuff, man. Like, you know, you deliver a record like Appetite for Destruction that does what it did for the next album that you put out. You then kind of have license to um, grab the chainsaw and go out and kill at least one family, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and it's like after that, once they figure out you killed the entire family with the chainsaw, they're going to like, you know, lock you up. But at least for that, that initial record after the big record you've kind of got like some pretty good uh you got a set of keys and you can take the car wherever you want to go their trajectory was a little different in that they put out lies yeah they they had these things that sort of kept them on the boards even though appetite was going you know fading into the distance so even though it took them an inordinate amount of time to deliver a follow-up they were still hot yeah, you know, they, the buzz around them never went away. I think a lot of bands, a lot of artists, they you know you release one big record, and there's a lot of in addition to this new clout that you've got, this chainsaw license that you've got. There's also a lot of pressure to come back and come sure. back quick with something that is 
going to satisfy people who bought the first album. And, and guns were a little different in that way because they, I think lies really helped extend their, their pre-illusion lifespan, I guess, you know, they, they, they didn't, they, I don't think they were really under the gun as much, uh, no pun intended. And I think, yeah, I don't know what their contract said. I'm sure it wasn't super artist friendly since they were still technically kind of a baby band, but they also had the wind at their back and you have somebody as unpredictable as Axel. I think he, well, we've seen it. He would happily have sat on that album indefinitely if he didn't feel like it was sure ready to put out. Well, to that point, I want to address two things. One that you just said about sitting on it and um, two going back to their unreliability. Ultimate Classic Rock for this entire past month has been focusing on covering a song each day from the Use Your Illusion albums. And so Alice Cooper appears on The Garden. And so there's two things that are really interesting. GNR ends up getting booked to open prior to Appetite for Destruction for Cooper at a show. And Axel at the last minute decides to stay with his girlfriend, Aaron, presumably, and not show up, leaving not show up to open for Alice Cooper. Well, you know, slight thing. So <laughs> leaving Duff and Izzy to cover the lead vocals, because apparently the GNR guys, like as most people would, they're like, well, shit, we can't, you know, tell Alice Cooper suddenly he doesn't have an opening band. You know, we got to go out and salvage this. The other part of it was that they were so pissed off that there was half a mind, you know, after they soldiered through that gig, they were going, we need a new front man because they were mm-hmm. like, well, we're going to toss this guy out the door. Like he leaves us hanging like as we have like an opportunity to open for Alice Cooper. That's, you know, inexcusable. So that speaks to the um, unreliability. But the other part that I love about this Alice Cooper story is that, first of all, he does end up taking the band back out later um, on the Appetite for Destruction tour on more of an extended run of actual dates. So a relationship develops there. And so uh, at some point they go to Alice because they want him to make an appearance on, you know, this song that they're recording for the use your illusion records song that ends up being called the garden. And the quip that I love from Alice about the garden is he asks Axel, will this song come out in less than six years? (laughs) So, so like considering that we're not even anywhere close to like, you know, Chinese democracy where he's going to sit on a record, you know, to your point, I really wonder like what sort of like insight Alice had to already ask that question. And, and maybe part of it was just like, him seeing the gap between, you know, appetite and, you know, the eventual, uh, the eventual arrival of the use your illusion records. I don't know, you know, but either way, like he, he either was able to, he either knew, I mean, it could be as simple as he knew enough from being on the road with these guys to ask kind of just straight out, is this going to come out or am I wasting my time? Cause I'm Alice (laughs) Cooper. If this is not going to come out for a decade or more, I got better things to do. The story I read was that he told Axel, I've got a tea time. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you only have me for X amount of, I forget what that, maybe three hours or whatever. But he, he was he said his point of view for this particular song was that if you can't get that type of vocal after a take or two, then yeah. there's something wrong. So yeah. he, he did what he was willing to do and then left. And I guess Alice trumps Axel, at least in 91. Apparently so. Yeah. Yeah. So 
since we're talking about the craziness here, I will go ahead and Mike Klink was the guy that was kind of overseeing all of this as far as the recording of the record. But it was interesting because I recently spoke with, as I mentioned, Matt Sorum. And as structured as you would expect these sessions to be, there was also enough of a lack of structure that when it came to the mixing, apparently there were just a lot of people that were checked out of of the whole mixing process. So basically the question that I put to Matt was I had, as I was getting ready to talk to Matt, I kind of came across the factoid that Bill Price is the guy who mixed these two records, but Bob Clearmountain was the guy that originally mixed the stuff. And I was extremely curious to find out because... And the band we, tossed him out and started over. So, so, so yeah. So, so you and I, like, you and I know, like, we are both liner notes nerds. And so anybody yeah. else out there that is a liner note nerd, you take a guy like Bob Clearmountain, Bob Ludwig, anybody you want to bring up, bring up. You take somebody like Bob Clearmountain in this in this in this case and throw him out the door. Something happened. So it's a lot of money being flushed down the toilet too. So I wanted to know. I wanted to know exactly what happened. And this is a, a little bit of a longer clip, um, but it's a good story from Matt. So we'll roll this here. Well, that was an interesting situation because you know Bob Clearmountain had plugged in down a record plant. We, you know, we'd given him free reign. I think I think Axel liked him because he had done just done Bruce Springsteen and some of the other stuff that he liked. So Bob started on the record, but you know, no one had, no one had gone down to the studio. So I remember it was probably 20, 30 songs in. I mean, he, he was almost done with the album. And me and Slash went down. And I remember Slash wasn't happy with the guitar. We were kind of sitting there and trying to figure out what, what happened with the drums. The drums were kind of small and didn't sound anything like what we recorded. And I remember I looked over and it was this Bob Claremountain sample CD, the drum samples. And I asked Bob, you know, what's happening with the drums? He said, oh, I've replaced a lot of them. I said, what? He'd gone in there and in those days they were sampling drums and doing well, they still do a lot of that now. It's like more, more normal now than ever. People do all kinds of that shit. But in those days, I never even heard of it. And I remember I called up the actual I called him. I go, Axel, something weird going on. He needs to come down here. <laughs> I said, what? I said, I, said he, I think he's replacing sounds on the record. And before I knew, I like, basically, the next day, Bob was gone. You know, he was fired. Actually, I don't even remember if he came down. I think he might have, but fired Bob, and that was that. And it was, you know, we moved on to Bill Price. <laughs> wow. So, so if you can imagine that phone call, you call, you're the guy that has to call Axel and say, Hey Axel, I think he's replacing some song. He's replacing some stuff on the record. Like you can just see Axel going nuclear when that happens. Mm-hmm. Wow! But but like the fact that like he gets basically twenty or thirty songs into mixing the record before somebody figures this out. Yeah, they, well, I wonder. Based on that story, it doesn't sound like they were on the road when that happened. But I mean, I know that they they had other things going on. Sure. Yeah, that's another. That's definitely another part of this record is that they were far enough into the making of this record that there was a point. You are correct that they were so far over schedule for this record that it bumped up against the next tour that they were supposed to go out on, which was basically the tour for these records, basically. So 
they went on tour for these records before the records had been finished. So there was an element of that later where it's like they were kind of, you know, coming in and out and finishing things up in between shows on the road, you know? So, so, but by the way, we should mention Matt Sorum has a new memoir called double talk and jive that folks can find all sorts of stories. The title tells you everything really double talk and jive true rock and roll stories from the drummer of guns and roses, the cult and velvet revolver. So three perfectly normal, non-dysfunctional bands. (laughs) The thing, the story about Sorum coming in, I think uh, is also interesting in terms of where the band started and where they had gotten to at this point, you know, that, that uh, Adler, his last couple sessions with them, he was so out of it that they had to compile tracks. They had to compile a complete performance out of multiple incomplete performances. Yep. And that's really, you know, you're talking about a band that, that type of recording is not that that's that's so far removed from where they started so you know just to just to kick just to just to begin the sessions for for illusion that way you know you're using so much technology you're using so many different passes and and i don't know it, it's i don't really have a fully developed thought here but i think it's i think there's an interesting point you're making which what that makes me think of is from what I know, the band that recorded Appetite for Destruction, and certainly after they go out and play a bunch of shows, one thing that you can say about Guns N' Roses that you can't say about a lot of other bands is, and I was just talking about this the other night uh, in regards to you know bands like Dream Theater and Rush, and we were discussing like live albums, basically. And Jeff Giles, by the way, is a huge fan of live records. <laughs> no, he's not. You know, but we were talking about like fixes for live albums, and it's like the thing about like a band like Rush or Dream Theater. I said, I would always love to be a fly on the wall in those mixing sessions because whatever they think they did wrong is going to be so, <laughs> so minor and not audible because anybody that's gone to see these bands, like they're just technically perfect and on the money pretty much 99% of the time. So yeah. I would apply that to like Guns N' Roses that like they well, are not technically perfect, but they certainly would have been tight, right? No, they're, they're, they're solid enough players and still, yeah. I guess, just like rough enough, you know, for that GNR thing, but it's like, you look at each of these guys, whether it's you know Slash or Izzy, Adler, etc. These are guys that know how to do what they do, and it's like and and Guns N' Roses, like they were a band that could play live. Like they they quickly became known as like you if if you saw any number any bit of like live footage from Guns N' Roses, you know that this is not a band that has been pieced together painstakingly in the studio. Which is right. to Alice Cooper's point why if you're Alice Cooper, you're just shaking your head like, you know, why are you doing this, Axel? Like, you know, you guys, you guys don't need to like do this over and over and over. You guys are better than that. You guys are the band that can go in and knock out, you know, these things in a take or two, unlike some bands that just, you know, they don't have the vocal ability. They suck at their instruments. They can't play well together. (laughs) So yeah, that kind of makes like when you hear some of the stories of like the hijinks, you know, yeah. behind this record, because th- this definitely I think starts to open the door in a major way to the studio dysfunction that would yeah yeah that would come after you know yeah so, I think you put it beautifully. Not only do you not have to do it, you sacrifice a lot when you do it. Yeah, you know, you 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 take away the energy 
that was really appealing to people in the beginning. And it's nothing that you can ever really put your finger on, but it, it's, you can, you can certainly feel it there. The, I, like I said, I was not a, a huge guns and roses fan when appetite came out, but I think that record is a lot more fun to listen to than either one of these. And um, whatever Adler's crimes against the band were, I think it's worth noting that Izzy for one was on the record as saying that when he left, the band stopped making sense for him because as great as Sorum is, and, and he is great, it, 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 you alter the chemistry of that unit and it just makes things different. I miss Izzy too. Like Izzy, Izzy's one yeah. of those people that as the years have passed, it's been kind of dissected more and more just really how much he spiritually brought to the band, you know, certainly with important things in his songwriting style, in his guitar playing style and yes. so on. But like, you know, just to hear him make an observation like that, it's very, it's very astute. And, and the other, the other thing that I was thinking of as you were you know, talking about that was just that it's really interesting when you talk about the Axel and Alice Cooper thing, it's interesting to me what musicians get hung up on. And yeah. here in the year of the 30th anniversary of the Black Album, I've been listening to the Metallica podcast that they've you know put together around that whole record. And something that was really interesting that I had not connected the dots on was prior to the Black Album, James Tetfield was going in and doubling his vocals. And Bob Rock, you know, kind of came to James when they started working on this record, because this was the first time that Bob Rock and Metallica had worked together. And Bob's just like, um, what if I can give you a really powerful vocal sound and you just go in and sing that vocal one time? And so on the podcast, Hetfield, you know, talks about how that really opened him up vocally. He's like, I became a singer with the Black Album. But his point was that when you have to double a record, He's like, you're in a certain, when you have to double a vocal, you're in a certain box because whatever you're doing with that vocal, you have to make sure that it's not so crazy that you're not going to be able to replicate it when you go to right. double the vocal. So that makes so much sense. But like hearing him say that, I'm like going, you know, never really thought about it that way. Like what a, what a box that would put a vocalist in just the, I mean, cause you know, Jeff doubling vocals. It's so common, or 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 if you're Donny yeah. Iris, it's it's tripling and quadrupling, you know. So, well, so when you're Donny Iris, you're doing that because you're a wizard. Usually, when you double vocals, you're trying to cover something up. You know, you're you're you're, you're trying to make a not fantastic singer sound like they're a little more powerful than they actually are. It's it's funny that Hetfield was doing that prior to hooking up the band, hooking up with Bob Rock. And I don't think anybody like looks at Headfield as being like a phenomenal singer to begin with, but it's just right. like that really kind of put him in an interesting light for me as a vocalist, because it's just like when you consider that and then it's like you're hearing the stuff from the Black album. It's like, you know what, like it, that's an example. And I think the Guns N' Roses did a similar thing here. That's an example that like James Hetfield progressed in a major way with the Black Album. Now, the fans might not have liked how Metallica progressed, progressed in air quotes with the Black Album, because as that album has turned 30, uh, I, I like the Black Album. I like old, I like old school Metallica. But I've discovered in having conversations about this record with people, the same people that were 
incensed in 1991 when the black album was released uh, I, I was having this conversation with uh with a buddy of mine that like i went to high school with i'm like 30 years on like maybe he's like me you know he's he's mellowed about the black no 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 he's still just as pissed off about the black album as he was then so i think metallica fans are like star wars fans you know they're angry for for life about where they feel like they've been wrong yeah angry for life put that on the back of a t-shirt or a jacket. I wanna I, I wanna circle back just for a minute to Izzy. Yeah, sure. First of all, we have to pay tribute to any musician who gives a job to a former member of the Georgia Satellites. Yes. Okay. So yes. On this show, you and I, we honor the satellites any chance we get. And Izzy hired Mara Magellan when he went off to start the Juju Hounds. He's been all right for that in my book. But also on a more serious note and a more guns related note, ah, man, he, for, for, for me, not a hardcore fan, uh, he's like, he's the lifeblood of these records for me. His, his stonesy stuff really adds a lot yeah. to these records. So I just wanted to, to note Izzy's input here and, and, and say that he certainly was missed after he took a hike. Uh, as much as the band had changed between this and Appetite, I think it's Izzy who really anchors the sound on these records to um, the past. Yeah, I totally agree. And like, I was just looking at writing credits as you were you know talking about Izzy because like, that's something like I would love to drill down on, like, for instance, like, you know, don't cry. He shares the writing credit on that with Axl Rose. And it's like, I would love to really know, kind of know what, he, what he brought to that song. I mean, there's really a lot of songs like that on this record. Like, and you know what? It's like, he, he's, he's got some of the really interesting credits, like whether you you ain't the first bad obsession, like, Double Talk and Jive is solely, you know, one that he wrote, as was You Ain't the First. So as we saw from Izzy after he left Guns N' Roses, like he's a guy that likes to make music in a lot of different directions and a lot of different styles. And I think that that's something that he definitely brought to Guns N' Roses was that he was like a very helpful unsung Swiss Army knife for this band that could yeah. really adapt to and answer a lot of different situations that were being thrown at him stylistically by Axel. So it just seems like to it seems like, and, and I think that you could probably say the same in some fashion about Slash, but I think Izzy even more so was the guy that really could take whatever was, you know, coming out of uh, Axel's head and really put an interesting twist on it. Like, I think all these guys were in such a creative zone that there's probably nobody that couldn't, you know, go toe to toe with Axel and match him musically with whatever they needed to match with, you know, from their instrument. But I think that Izzy was really kind of the guy in this band that really kept them. They could have just been another ACDC type band. And this is not an ACDC slam at all, but they could have just churned out record after record after record of appetite for destruction and i think that instead because of the different folks that were in this band and all the different things that they were into izzy in particular i think that like as axel wanted to like really push the boat out from the dock he had the right person to do that in izzy right 
Yeah, I agree with all of that. And where I was going to go, man, about a half hour ago when we when we started talking about like kind of like the radio, for, the radio or the more friendly songs on this record is, like I said, like there was the stuff that we started hearing, you know, from this record, you know, whether it's like Live and Let Die, Knocking on Heaven's Door, You Could Be Mine. That was like in line with what had come from Appetite. But when I heard stuff like Don't Cry and November Rain and we can't forget what a big factor MTV was in all of this. Like Mm -hmm. it just, uh, you said it, man, November rain close to nine minutes. And between the song, it's, it's the song that ultimately brings it home, but the video definitely, you know, plays some sort of co-starring role. When I first heard stuff like, like November rain and, and don't cry. I was like, first of all, I think don't cry kind of like, you know, maybe takes it, takes things a little bit further if you've heard patience you're not shocked by don't cry i was i think shocked by november rain because it was such an epic that song and civil war like i don't think that that got as much i don't even know if that was released as a single but civil wars is is a song that you know for anybody that like has listened to rock radio in the past 20 years. Like it, it's kind of become like kind of a staple guns and roses um, radio track. And which is interesting because it's just kind of, it, it's another one of the weird songs from, from, from this record. So it's like, I think, you know, November rain, if it did not have that MTV video and the success that it did, I don't think that you're hearing November rain on the radio all these years later, but it's like, you can kind of make the argument that like, well, you know what? Civil war was kind of, kind of had the same weird factor, you know, and and you are hearing that on the radio. So I don't, I don't know. All that is to say that the weird stuff on these two records, and that's not even really scratching the weird surface, by the way, guys, like it gets a lot more weird, but the weird stuff on these two records really drew me in. I actually do like right next door to hell, um, looping back again, like 30 minutes or so to, you know, your disparaging <laughs> remarks about that song. I've been waiting for this. <laughs> that's um, that, that's the opening song on that first Use Your Illusion record. And yeah, uh, again, just knowing that this is the 90s where it's like anybody that was making a record, like just deliberated the sequence of an album to death. Um, <laughs> I think that was the right tune to place there because um, if anything, it does not hint at the crazy ride you're about to take with both of these albums. Like it kind of sounds, I think close enough to traditional GNR that you're like, yeah, man, these guys are back fucking rock. And it's so good to hear guns and roses again. So if you haven't heard any of the radio singles, if you just went out cold, you know, you know, I don't listen to the radio radio sucks. If that's you and you just went out you know, because you, you know, what Doug appetite and you wanted to buy the new guns and roses album, and you heard that song. You're like, Cool, man. Guns N' Roses is back. And then from there, man, things start getting a little bit wild. I love that there's, um, between the two records, it's so artistic and awesome that there are two different versions of Don't Cry. <laughs> you think that's artistic and awesome? I think that's pretty self-indulgent myself. <laughs> it is totally self-indulgent. Absolutely. <laughs> artistic. I love, I love that Right Next Door to Hell opens the album because that means it gets it out of the way. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Artistic, by the way, Jeff, is it's a synonym for uh, self-indulgent. So, so yeah. 
But uh, I think we spent a lot of time like going over what was question one. <laughs> so, so what what else do you have thought wise? Well, appropriately, we we turned that first question in, into a two record set. Yes, I love it. It's totally appropriate. I, I think all I would say, kind of in closing, is that I, in retrospect, I, I, I'd like to. Th- it, it's hard not to for for me not to think of an alternate universe in which these guys came out with another album in like '89, and it was 10, 11 songs. Yeah, and if they were writing this much, then they could just keep banking that material, and they could keep coming out with a new record every couple of years, and then after they put out, I don't know, three, four, five, like get a career under your belt, and then shoot your load with something like a 30 song two album set that comes out in the same day i i question the wisdom of going from a a, a record setting debut to something like this within a span of four years I, i i don't think it was i don't think it was a good decision. I don't think it was necessary. I like to think of guns. Uh, I wonder how much longer they would have been able to keep it together if they hadn't swung for the fences so hard with this one. What? So what did you like about the two records? Oh, you put me on the spot here. Like um, were, were there songs that you, that you, in, that you enjoyed? The Izzy songs pretty much. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm probably the wrong person. <laughs> this is ironic. <laughs> I'm kind of, the, I'm probably the wrong person to talk to about guns. Cause I, I just, I've always had a hard time listening to Axel, but um, with 30 years distance, I can hear the good stuff in here. And I really think that if it had been cut down to a, more manageable length if they had gotten rid of some of the the chaff here i think everybody would have been better off did you except for maybe the accountants because we all know that this yeah so and, and i'm going back to like your you as you said you heard the albums in full for the first time getting ready to do this podcast today i did um so at the time did you hear like any of the craziness, like, like I, I just love like that Axel took like his beef with critics, for example, and that makes its way to get in the ring. Like, so, so certainly before, I think perhaps even before I like own these two records, I was, you know, hearing the flap over getting the ring and all the people that have been targeted by getting the ring that basically like whatever shots that they had taken at Guns N' Roses, suddenly they found themselves in the lyrics on the next Guns N' Roses (laughs) album, which I think Bob Guccione was one of them. And, you know, and so I just think that's ridiculous. That is just so that's so petulant. And and I, I mean, I think if you're a band like this, you want a front man who's got attitude and is ready to fight somebody. And (laughs) yep, that that really benefits you as a band in this vein. But there's a line between that and, you know, Festivus night at Axel's house, which is what get in the ring really turns into when he's running (laughs) down this list of people that he has grievances with. That's so stupid. I don't know. I, I, that, that, that that to me is a waste of everybody's time and space. I don't find that 
I don't know. Well, I, I, yes, I was aware of that. Everybody, yeah, that was all in the news. I knew that he wanted that he had a chip on his shoulder against everybody. They real fuck St. Louis, and then every critic who ever gave them a bad review. But I mean, like, was there a more intriguing front man in that maybe era? Not. Maybe not. But you and I can speak to this on a much more limited scale. If you put something out for public consumption, yeah, you <laughs> you're you're entering into a, a contract basically with whatever audience there might be. You know, you yep. are inviting feedback, and there was not. I don't know. I I don't think there was anything that was ever said about Guns and Roses that was objectionable enough for him to be justified in. Uh, something like get in the ring i just think that that's so childish you asked for this maybe not consciously but you did you got in front of a microphone and you you got a record contract and you wanted mtv and you toured the world people are going to have something to say about it i think from what i've seen too that like you know not surprisingly axel rose being axel rose i'm pretty sure he still stands behind every second of getting the ring too <laughs> that he does that's like the whole funny thing is that like very often, like, you know, it's like, there's like somebody that like, will like, you know, back down, like, you know, 20, you know, in this case, 30 years later, they'll say, yeah, maybe that was a little bit silly. And in this case, like, I don't think that really happened. I think basically Axel did the classic, you know, double down. Right. Yeah. So, God it's bless appealing him. to me. Yeah. I, I don't know. Like we, I, I guess potentially the same thing can be said for anybody that grew up in a certain era, but I think we grew up in a really interesting time having Axl Rose, Steven Tyler, yep. James Hetfield, and basically all of Metallica. I think, you know, if you're going to say Axl Rose, you you got to really say all of Guns N' Roses and, and, and Steven Tyler and all of Aerosmith, but maybe the personalities for the generations prior to that. Okay. Keith Moon, et cetera. And I guess part of it is like maybe we had the benefit of seeing so much more of this stuff through the lens of MTV, mm-hmm. but I just don't know that there's uh, much that compares to like you know what we kind of grew up witnessing as far as just these crazy over the top personalities. I think that's a good point, and I think Axel may be the best front man to lead us toward the end of this era as we round the final bend to the end of uh, 1991 and, and the end of our little experiment here. I like that transition. I'm like, I'm like, I think he's like, <laughs> I think he's moving to wrap up. I was, I was like looking, uh, Jeff has like seen me like scrolling here for the past five minutes because I've been trying to find, like I mentioned earlier, like cutting uh, illusion down to one record. And I was oh, like yeah. trying to find that and uh, Google's not helping me. And I'm discovering just how many Guns N' Roses stories we've done at Ultimate Classic Rock <laughs> over the past two, two years. As I as I see the one headline that says, you know, Axl Rose, can you say shitbag was the one, you know, the one title. So, you know, good times. Never, never a dull moment in the world of Axl Rose. Uh, what I was going to say about Guns N' Roses that impresses me about these two records is that, you know, I think maybe I don't even think Metallica is in the same vein, but you have so many bands that get this far in this case 30 years removed from these two use your illusion albums 
And you would expect that basically the only things that would be left in the set list would be, you know, the hits, the stuff that people know. But I covered the tour opener in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And I want to give a special shout out to Rob Smith, who was kind enough to not be home when I was in Hershey, Pennsylvania. So I went to Hershey, Pennsylvania. I did not see Rob Smith because he's like, oh, I'm going to be in Delaware. Sorry, dude. You know, he didn't say it like that. He was actually very Rob Smith about it. He was very nice. He was he was bummed. But regardless, I went to Hershey and all I got was the Guns N' Roses show. There was no Rob Smith there. <laughs> Our dear, dear brother, Rob Smith. But they keep so much of the Use Your Illusion stuff in the set list, like songs like Double Talk and Jive and Estranged and just stuff that's pretty far removed. Uh, I, th- I think right next door to hell, you know, if it's not in there, in there presently, it has been. So dead horse, dead horse was in the coma. Like there's basically every song on these two records uh, or a lot of the songs, because there's some GNR person sitting out there going, no, man, they haven't played this one song <laughs> since 1992. And you know what? Fuck that band. But they, they keep so many of these songs in the regular set list. And, Jeff Giles would say, yeah, that's pretty self-indulgent. But let me tell you, Jeff Giles, I was standing there in Hershey, PA, watching the fans in the crowd literally sing those songs word for word, whatever they were. And and that really floored me. I can't recall the last time I saw that at a show. You know, again, we've said ACDC. ACDC would be another one where it's like, I feel like the fans of that band, they have that kind of catalog knowledge. But it just was really... It really was symbolic how, and I don't even think you can say, well, Guns N' Roses, they haven't made that many records. Like That's exactly my counterpoint to this. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think these records are pretty embedded with GNR fans. If you've ever met a GNR yeah. fan, and by the way, if you're going to meet a GNR fan to like really talk about this with, Jeff Giles is not your guy. I'm not your guy. <laughs> and, and me, it's like, I'm a little bit... I'm a little bit above Jeff Giles uh, in that <laughs> I, I listened to the record prior to today. Uh, the albums, I'm sorry. Yeah, they're not in my regular rotation on an ongoing basis. Um, but uh, yeah, certainly I have more of an appreciation than our sorely, sadly misguided uh, Jeff Giles, who spent the almost the entirety of 2021 talking about CD bloat. And as, <laughs> as punishment for that, he got... I get used your illusion. mess. <laughs> Yeah. 160 minutes of Guns N' Roses preparations for today's podcast. And and after saying all of that, some of which didn't sound entirely complimentary, thank you, Jeff, for putting in that research. It's appreciated. I will say I appreciate these albums more now right? than I, than I did in 1991. Yeah. But 45 minutes, my friend. That's your right. target. The 45-minute Jeff Giles album police. There you have it. Is there so now that we need this to, is usually, uh, I don't know if there's anything else we need to discuss about this, but one thing I do keep meaning to mention is uh, as I was scrolling past, looking for the, uh, for the single album, use your illusion. I was reminded that we recently did a story at ultimate classic rock about the 30 wildest moments from the use your illusion tour. And all that really made me think of, that's really not a plug for you to go and look at it. Although you should go and look at it because um, it's quite the collection. pretty wild. I, I, I mean, and like that there was so much insanity there was the there was there were riots you know and so on but the thing that 
I was not aware of was I think somewhere in the last half of the tour, they had somebody delivering a pizza on stage to Guns N' Roses every night. And it was like a bit that I think usually they had somebody do do it from the road crew. And I had it on my list because I wanted to ask Sorum like what the purpose was, you know, <laughs> for delivering that pizza every night. Um but it, it got to the point where it's like they started having like the occasional like celebrity guest that would come out like unannounced and deliver the pizza to Guns N' Roses. So I thought that was pretty, pretty funny. So, um, but I think that the reason I mentioned that is I think that kind of like illustrates how the insanity um, carried over to the tour. Uh, there's the famous story with Yes of, uh, of, Rick Wakeman getting so bored that I think allegedly he had dinner delivered to himself that particular night. Curry, right? Yeah. Curry. There you go. Well, take Rick Wakeman's curry and multiply that out to every night for a certain span of the Guns N' Roses tour. They were delivering pizza to the stage. And there you have just a a small uh a small slice of the insanity that was the Use Your Illusion tour. 194 shows in 27 countries. One of the longest treks in rock history, according to Ultimate Classic Rock. And I'm I'm not fact-checking that. I'm just going to tell you folks listening, that's got to be correct. It was a massive tour for a massive record. And um, yeah, just, I, the, the point remains, like we are, we're getting, I think this record, these albums are reflective of where AOR had gotten itself and, 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 uh, and where it was heading, which was, you know, no place, no place else, but down basically like they, things had been so built up at this point that there wasn't much bigger that it could get. So you don't think um, that this was of sorts, um, a little bit of a lifeline for AOR for the moment. Oh, absolutely. For the moment. Yeah. yeah. Is it sustainable? I don't think so. So we can agree that AOR did not eat itself with this particular. <laughs> I think it was just about ready to do so, but no, this was, yeah. Like usually at this point we ask, should this, does it, did this album do as well or as poorly as it should have is, was this album a bellwether for what was about to happen with the format? We don't need to ask those questions of this album. It, it was a massive hit. Everybody knew it was going to be a massive hit. And Guns were on top of the world. That's probably all there is to say about Use Your Illusion, Volume One and Volume Two. We have we have gone long on this episode, fittingly it's, so. Absolutely, yeah. And um, for, for our next episode, let's see how do we how do we tease this? How is the next album different or similar? To Guns N' Roses, use your illusion. Oh, that's a good question. Um, the, the band is certainly smaller in terms smaller. of the number of members. Is is there part of use your illusion that we could uh, define as is <laughs> <as> rapping? <laughs> I think there is. Like, I'm not. I'm not coming up with it, but I think that, that we can we can make that connection very loosely. Are they? I think we can reveal secretly that Guns N' Roses, they're Canadian, right? No, no, we can't. Mm, okay. All right. Mm. Never mind. I'm, did, I'm done. Yeah. I'm done trying to make connections and tease. <laughs> we are wrapping it up here until next time. And uh, if you have figured out who we're going to talk about next and which album we're going to talk about next, then my hand is off to you. Either way, we'll 
be talking to you again next month. Matt, always a pleasure. Likewise. And uh, we'll be back to having a special guest next episode. We were supposed to have somebody with us today, but didn't show up. And uh, I think it was probably for the, for the best anyway, considering that we managed to talk and talk and talk and talk, just the two of us. Yeah, I think we, we had some fun here for sure. So, all right, sir. Well, thank you as always. Thank you, Fred. I'll talk to you next month. Yeah.